This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast covering all topics that sit on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with Carl Kaikendall. Did I get the last name right? You did. You did, Hill. All right. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, and I am too. And and this is a conversation I think I've mentioned to to you that I've had uh, many times with a lot of my friends here in Houston. Um, And the, the conversation is really around the idea is Detroit a model for, for Houston as an energy transition kind of disrupts uh, or influences the, the uh, you know predominantly fossil fuel based economy? So, so this is a, a great curiosity to me as as a Houston resident and a Texas resident, and uh, I'm very grateful. Now we've got the opportunity to to hear from an expert. Carl is a uh, an economist within the uh, U.S. regional team here at IHS Market, and, and has done a lot of work on. Texas on Houston and I think uh, what southern re- region is that right in terms of your focus? Yes, yep. Yeah. Uh, so, so I focus on kind of the major oil producing states in the south. Okay, and and so we were talking to just a few weeks ago, um, you know, really about this idea, and, and you know, I guess to, to help frame it for, for the for, for the rest of the conversation, you know, how, how well maybe I'll back up a second. So 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 the idea here is you know Houston and Texas is clearly uh, going to be impacted or affected by an energy transition. That the Houston economy, you know, if I kind of look around, many of my friends, many of my neighbors work in the oil and gas industry, work as bankers who meet the needs of oil and gas industry, work as real estate agents who sell houses to the oil and gas industry, whatever it happens to be, it is a major impact uh, on the Houston economy. Texas, obviously, whether it's the Permian Basin or Fort Worth Basin, you know, has big exposure um, to traditional energy, increasing exposure to renewable energy. But, uh, you know, what what are we, how, how big is energy for Texas uh, when we're looking at it from the perspective of an economist? Yeah, that's a great question, Hill. And, and there's a, a lot to unpack here. And um, yeah, and I think the good news for your Houston listeners is, um, you know, as we kind of get into the conversation, I think the major point is that that Houston still has poised to do well. Um, in, in this energy transition, but, but we'll kind of unpack that and, and talk more about that in a bit. But, but I think to start, just to give some background uh, on energy in Texas generally, um, you know, energy is in Texas's economic DNA. So oil discoveries over a century ago helped shape the early development of Houston and Dallas and really set the foundation for the major urban centers there today. And while Texas has grown tremendously over the past few decades and is much larger, diversified and a much more dynamic economy now than it was, the energy industry remains a key economic driver. And energy even still has strong cultural ties to the state. So during the early years of the oil boom, Texas was viewed as a place you go to make something of yourself. And Mm -hmm. that really still rings true today. I think the difference now being is that there are um, opportunities you know, across many different industries and cities within Texas. And, and quite frankly, 
the Texas growth story overall has been simply phenomenal over the past 30 years. Uh, so the state has ranked among the fastest growing in terms of population, employment, and GDP. And that's even extra impressive given the sheer size of Texas, since it takes uh, a lot more development to move the, the needle in the states you know, that large. But kind of focusing back on, on, on energy and the role it has in Texas, you know, energy has transformed itself several times over the past few decades in Texas. So the oil industry was heavily tied to the upstream sector from the early 1900s up until the 1970s. But starting in the 1970s, Texas underwent a long and persistent period of decline in oil production, uh, with it falling about 70% um, mm -hmm. by 2010 relative to the 1970s peak. But during this time of contraction in the upstream sector, we saw tremendous growth in, in the downstream sector. So I don't have a good estimate on the value of the investments, but you being from Houston, um, I'm, I'm sure you've driven along the Gulf Coast and you've seen uh, the massive facilities uh, geared towards the downstream sector. Um, and the, there have been hundreds upon hundreds of billions of dollars invested along the Gulf Coast over the, over the past few decades to really build out uh, what is now, you know, the petrochemical refining and energy export hub that uh, Houston is today. Um, and then kind of just to wrap up the historical context of this, like um, now we're kind of in this post 2010 period where we've seen the best of both worlds, where the hydraulic fracking um, mm -hmm. has kind of led to uh, much higher oil and gas production in Texas. And while that's been happening, the downstream sector has continued to grow. Um, so by 2017, oil production in Texas surpassed its 1970s peak, uh, and there's major investments that are continuing in the downstream sector uh, of note. LNG export uh, capabilities have grown dramatically in recent years, and it's really been a truly remarkable period for the state's energy industry uh, over the last decade. When we look back maybe a little bit further, I mean, the, the uh, I guess the big bust that people still talk about is 86. Uh, or thereabouts. How 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 did that hit Texas and, and Houston, and what was done coming coming out of it um, to to make sure that you know if something like that hits again, it's a little bit different or better. Yeah, and, and that's another great question. And I think um, so to kind of go back to that period, you know, it was kind of the start of the long decline in oil production in Texas, and that bus was preceded by massive speculation in um, Houston's real estate markets mm -hmm. and, um, you know, speculation just in, in the broader energy markets. And then uh, once the oil prices crashed, kind of the, the bubble burst and Texas endured kind of a pretty, a pretty deep recession from the late 1980s up until kind of um, the early 1990s. And it was exacerbated by the fact that at that time, Texas had outlawed interstate banking. So, so the crash completely devastated financial markets in Texas. They were completely exposed. So as we saw with the 2009 recession, you know, anytime you have a financial uh, market collapse, it has, you know, even more devastating consequences um, for, uh, for the economic conditions uh, overall. Um, but yeah, I, I think even though we had that severe downturn in Texas, it was short-lived. Uh, so starting in 1990, essentially, throughout the 90s, Houston came back stronger than ever. So, you know, it, it was a case where, you know, there, there was talk regarding diversifying away from energy. The mm -hmm. state and local leaders, you know, they were having that conversation and, and they did so, especially in Houston, to a degree. 
So, so in Houston, it was uh, a situation uh, where it grew some in industries outside of energy. And I think most notably, Houston made aggressive efforts to expand the Texas Medical Center, uh, right. which is dubbed the, the largest medical center in the world. Houston also invested in its universities. Um, it kept business and housing costs low by limiting kind of obstacles for development. You know, Houston is notoriously known for having very lax zoning laws. Um, and, and the city itself, you know, has attracted an enormous number of migrants from across the U.S. and the globe. So, you know, Houston has very much benefited from the broader U.S. migration trends of people moving south. It's also benefited from its proximity to other moving urban centers in Texas, uh, notably uh, Dallas, Austin, and San Antonio. Uh, and that's helped foster broader business and economic growth. But even then, even during the 90s and 2000s, even as oil production fell in Texas overall, uh, the energy industry never stopped being a factor during this period of growth. Uh, the difference being is that activity during the 90s and 2000s was concentrated uh, into the downstream sector. Uh, mm -hmm. So it was in investments in refinery capacity, uh, petrochemicals and export facilities it attracted billions of dollars of investments. And, and it also uh, led to, you know, the increasing footprint of corporate and research activities uh, related to energy. Um, so all of that continued to grow. So, you know, I, I think it's a misnomer to kind of think that after that late 80s oil bus that Houston kind of diversified away from energy, it really kind of just changed, you know, the role that energy played in its economy. So, so if you ask me, that was kind of one of the first stages of kind of a Houston area energy transition that, that came about because of, because of this oil crash. Well, if I look at other kind of major metropolitan areas, thinking, you know, in terms of energy transitions, so you mentioned Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, and if I think back, you know, 10, 15 years, Dallas-Fort Worth was the, the, the hotbed of the unconventional gas world with the Barnett Shale. And you, know, you would drive through there in 2005, 2008, and there were some 200, 250 rigs or something drilling around Fort Worth. And then as that play kind of moved out of gas prices, Collapse. Dallas and, and the whole Fort Worth area seem to be relatively resilient despite that. So I'm, I'm guessing that Dallas ha has a fairly diversified economy as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, I, and, and energy never um, never played the same role in Dallas as, as it did in Houston. But yeah, and I think that's a great point. And I think it's a great point overall, broadly for Texas. So so there have been you know several times over the past few decades where we've had kind of corrections in energy, in energy markets. Uh, obviously, the, the late 80s is kind of the big one and the one that's kind of most prominent. But, um, you know, we also, you know, not too long ago, after that boom in fracking, we had the, the major uh, oil price correction that started mm -hmm. in late 2014. And that was a major shock to Texas overall. And that was a time w where the Texas economy has seen energy grow again as, as a share of kind of the broader economic activity. But overall, Texas weathered it pretty well. Uh, it was it was a case where Texas overall didn't enter recession. Growth slowed. Um, it was a period where growth in Texas was kind of below the national average, which is very uncommon uh, for the state. Um, and Houston probably entered what you'd call a mild recession following that that late 2014 oil price collapse. But it still wasn't all that devastating. Um, I, I think that the big kind of loser, so to say, uh, during that period, it was West Texas. Right. Um, in, in the metros along the, the Permian, uh, 
just because of the, the you know, the major kind of losses in the upstream sector, this major employment losses, even though during that period, oil, oil production continued to rise, but um, it was just a case where the productivity gains were just so massive that there was just a, a number of job losses in the upstream sector and that, and that still haven't come back uh, fully to this day. Um, and in the case of Dallas, yeah, yeah Dallas did see a, a kind of a, a boom, so to say, um, in, in the Barnett sh uh, shale formation, but you know, it, it still was a relatively small share of, of the overall Dallas economy. And, and Dallas has a lot more things going for it. Uh, in particular, it's it's just been a hotbed for um, new corporate activity. And yeah. It's attracted these massive corporate investments, and it's attracted just, just a large amount of people um, that are mi migrating there every year. Um, so uh, Dallas is very much a, a service sector uh, focused economy, and, and that's been growing so fast that it's able to shake off, you know, the, you know, the downturn in, in the Barnett Shale, and, and and quite honestly, you know, energy doesn't play the same role in Dallas's future as it does in Houston in West Texas. Yeah, they get all the fame for the uh, sitcom titled Dallas rather than Houston or Odessa or whatever one would title a different sitcom from the seventies or eighties or whatever that show was. Um, well, so so the other, I mean, kind of the, the comparison that, that started off the, uh, you know, you and my conversation was really around Detroit or the Rust Belt and, and thinking about other sectors and other U.S. states that that are biased to to one sector or another. Um, we also talked about that the Carolinas and some of the textile and furniture exposure that was disrupted by globalization or or by outsourcing. How do we? Can you put a little context, particularly around kind of the. Detroit example, where you had a lot of what, what I assume were at the time high paid engineers working in the auto industry around Detroit and obviously Detroit was, you know, at least throughout the 90s, not quite the you know, growing city that that, that other cities uh, or the many cities, all cities were aspired to be. Yeah, yeah. And and, and that's an interesting comparison and something that I'll, I'll, I'll unpack. But I think first, I do want to kind of circle back regarding kind of the impact of, of of energy in Texas, because mm -hmm. I think that's a good lead-in to then talking about Detroit, because you know I gave some qualitative background, you know, regarding how important energy is for Texas, but but just to kind of give some quantitative background, because obviously as an economist, you know, I'm trying to pretty much uh, quantify you know everything. Everything. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I do want to give some numeric context regarding just how big the energy industry uh, is relative to the broader Texas and Houston economies. The issue being that this kind of isn't a straightforward exercise. So, you know, there are data limitations along with different ways to kind of look at energy's impact. Um, but kind of just to kind of give some context and, and just to kind of get to a number. Mm -hmm. um, so the economic data that we have is defined by NAICS codes. So there is a specific mining and oil and gas extraction sector, which essentially includes all of the upstream activity. Uh, so this covers workers in the oil and gas fields. Uh, so it's, you know, jobs you know, related to setting up rigs, drilling wells, overseeing rig operations, um, you know, dismantling sites, you name it. So, um, uh, and the other thing about mining is that uh, it's an incredibly output intensive industry. So the sector produces high value products with a relatively small number of workers. So with that in mind, let's, you know, talk about some of the numbers. So mining itself comprises about 14% of Texas GDP. Uh, but only 2% of total employment. Uh, and given the high output nature of the industry, it does pay very well with wages over twice the state average, 
but um, it still only comprises a little over 4% of total wage disbursements. So, so it's still pretty small relative to GDP. Um, and that this, includes, sorry to interrupt, but that includes um, everyone from the oil field workers all the way up to the executives working for an energy company in Texas? It does not. Yeah. Okay. So, so we're going to broaden the scope here. So, and, and I think when you kind of look at the energy impact, right, it's going to vary depending on what indicator you look at. But I think since this discussion is focused on the broad economic impl implications, you know, I'm going to focus on GDP. So that's going to be the biggest number. And I think it's appropriate to do that because energy does support many jobs in other industries indirectly, as you mentioned, like in you know, the corporate and the finance type jobs. So, so I think since, you know, energy has such wide ranging impacts, I think it, it makes sense to pick the metric that gives you the biggest number. Um, so um, with that disclaimer out of the way, you know, as I mentioned, the mining sector comprises 14% comprises of Texas GDP. Um, but with energy, you also want to bring in the downstream impacts. So right. to do that, we can add in the contribution from the manufacturing industries that are tied to energy. Uh, so this would be like the petroleum and coal products, the chemicals, and the share of the machinery and metals that supply the energy infrastructure. So altogether, that adds another 7% contribution to GDP. Uh, so leaving it there, energy would account for 21% of Texas GDP. Uh, and using this metric, energy would comprise about 24% of GDP in Houston. Um, but the contribution is, is different in that the manufacturing components are a much larger share in Houston, given that mm -hmm. it has enormous downstream sectors. Um, and then the mining sector itself is, is smaller uh, in Houston relative to, to Texas overall. And um, I think the bottom line here is that energy is a you know a critical driver for the Texas and Houston economies. And the you know the mining and manufacturing components alone account for over 20% of GDP. Now I've seen credible estimates upwards of 30% or higher if you incorporate some of that service sector activity that you're mentioning. The issue here is that the way the data is constructed, there's kind of no way to, with 100% certainty, kind of bring in, you know, this is exactly kind of the energy contribution because um, it's hard to break out, say, engineer working solely on kind of energy projects related to one, you know, that's working on something else. Like right. just, just the, the way that the, the data is broken out. But, you know, I, I think just the, it's, in terms of GDP, you know, over 20% is, is, is a credible estimate. So 20 to 30 percent, and that's inclusive of the, the white collar workers and the blue collar workers with, with, with tied to energy. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So to give some context, very big number. Um, yeah. So and I think that's kind of how, how you kind of start start drawing in the comparisons to Detroit, because, you know, I completely understand the concerns, um, you know, with Houston, you know, move, as we move kind of to this low carbon economy and, and you know, could it push Houston into a prolonged period of stagnation or, or maybe even decline, kind of similar to what happened to Detroit. Now, I think the good news for, you know, people that are rooting for Houston is that, you know, I really think that's an unlikely outcome. Uh, you know, Houston is a much, uh, is kind of much better positioned going into this en energy transition than Detroit was during the U.S. auto market transition. Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of give some historical context here, um, so U.S. automakers dominated uh, the market through the 1960s. And Detroit's big three, so GM, Chrysler, and Ford, they combined for over 80% of, of US sales. And, and 
you know, that share started to erode in the early 1970s. Um, the oil price shock then led some consumers to move towards more fuel efficient vehicles. Um, and that was a market that the foreign automakers had a leg up in. So mm -hmm. we, started to, we started to see some erosion in market share there. Um, but I'd also say too, that the 1970s also featured another fundamental shift. And this is when central air was invented. It's also when air conditioning units became more commonplace in US households. Uh, so this helped spark what you know now has been a decades long trend of migration from the Northeast and Midwest to the Sun Belt. Um, and that's an important um, point to make because there was a period in the mid 1980s to mid 1990s when conditions improved for US automakers um, and their market share stabilized at around 70%. And it also was a period when Detroit could have capitalized on you know, the good condition that the automotive industry was in and you know, use it as a springboard for new industries. And there could have been a push to better diversify the local economy in Detroit. Um, and there were some efforts to do so, but nothing really significant came to fruition. And population growth in Michigan and Detroit was you know, lackluster at best since, since the start of the 1970s. And part of that stemmed from the over-reliance on the automotive industry. But another factor was just, as I mentioned, the broader migration trends, which just made it harder for Michigan, Michigan to attract new residents. And you know, Detroit itself struggled with acute social unrest and the surge in violent crimes during the 70s and 80s that further limited growth potential. Yeah, we, yeah. So, so before we get too far away from it, but the introduction of air conditioning. Yeah. That's that's the first time that, that, that I've heard that. As it makes all the sense in the world, uh, but particularly with, with all of the, um, you know, the destinations of Phoenix and Las Vegas and all these very hot places that would be very hard to live in uh, or Houston without air conditioning. And, and I mean, is that something we saw both in the Rust Belt and some of, say, the New England states where people were, you know, I, I know there's an exodus almost or an ingress to a, you know, warmer climates today. Um, can we correlate that with the introduction of air conditioning kind of across the northern part of uh, the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. It was a huge factor. Yeah, and I think it's something that, that can get overlooked. I mean, yeah, I take it for granted because I've been doing regional economics for a while. So it's something that I've been aware of for a while. But it, it, it was a, a really a big factor because, quite honestly, you know, the Texas summers would be unbearable. You know, <laughs> they still are. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're bad enough. But um, it's one of those things where, yeah, you know, back before air conditioning, I guess it was, it was easier to kind of heat your home um, and stay warm that way and, and just deal with the winters than it was to kind of kind of trudge through the summers without a way to cool yourself, you know, well. So, so quick side note on that, that, you know, uh, Texas is famous for, for, for beef barbecue, right? And uh, the, the beef is obvious, right? Because there's a lot of cows in Texas, but, but I understand also that people were cooking that beef outdoors because it was too hot to get indoors which is why we have such great barbecue here, uh, but perhaps better barbecue than they have in cold places. It's really interesting, yeah. Another yeah, unintended think, consequence. Yeah, and I think honestly, the, the regional growth trends would look very different if the timing around air conditioning changed, like if it came out later or earlier. Mm -hmm. We definitely would see, 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 see kind of a change in, in how that played out. But, but yeah, in this case, it really was. And if you look back at the data and the population trends, you really see, um, that the population growth in the South really started to take off uh, in the 1970s. And that was, you know, correlated to the, the wide use of air conditioning. So, so yeah, so Detroit and, and Michigan overall had, you know, had a number of things going against it, be it industry, um, be it population trends. 
And then, um, yeah, things really started to unravel for Detroit starting in, in the you know late 90s and into mm-hmm. the 2000s. And, and we're at a point now where, um, you know, Detroit has recovered to a degree, but population and employment uh, levels are both still below, you know, the peaks that they were in the late 1990s. So, so you know, Detroit still hasn't, you know, fully recovered from from the, the prolonged recession that it endured. Um, and, you know, I'd say that Houston, you know, is a very different city and economy than Detroit. And, you know, I think the primary kind of similarity between the both, between both of them is just the fact that they both rely on one industry for a large share of economic activity. Um, but the dynamics around the energy industry, you know, just have few, you know, few similarities uh, to automobiles. Uh, and, you know, Houston has major competitive advantages uh, that give it a big leg up in helping it survive, you know, and potentially thrive uh, as we transition uh, to a low, you know, carbon energy future. Uh, Before so, we get too too far into some of this, but do you have a kind of ballpark of what the uh, GDP was tied to uh, automotive manufacturing uh, in Detroit or any kind of Rust Belt aggregate? Yeah, not um, not not a good one, and, and not at its peak because um, the the data that we have like kind of just goes back to the the early '90s. But it was um it w- it was um you know manufacturing and especially you know manufacturing related autos in Detroit, mm-hmm. you know, it was well over 20%, you know, at, at you know, at its peak. Um, so, so it was, it was certainly kind of at a level at or higher than, you know, where energy is um, for, for Houston right now. So similar reliance in terms of, you know, a single energy or a single industry focus, but, but I guess you were just getting into some of the, the advantages that Houston has relative to the, the Rust Belt, to Detroit in particular. Yeah, yeah, and and I think the other the other thing too with energy is that it, it's a different industry, right? So like, um, it, it Detroit lost market share, and plants were opened up in other countries and mm-hmm. states. And the thing with energy is you either have you have the fossil fuels in the ground or you don't. And you know Texas has them in the state. The other thing about energy is, it, especially when you look at the downstream sector, it involves this massive infrastructure, right? Um, and you either have it or you don't, and it's been built up in Houston. So it's really a tough, a tough, you know, thing to happen for kind of another city to then, you know, try to challenge Houston and kind of take over the reins of, of the energy leader, because you have to have a lot of things going for you, and you have to have the infrastructure in place and the expertise in place. So, so in that in that case, you know, it makes energy a lot, you know, safer of an industry than than automobiles were back when, you know, in Detroit's heyday. When thinking, I guess, more broadly across the state and tying it more to the, the kind of the low carbon transition, you know, I think Texas is also you know a leader in renewables, particularly wind and solar, as you know the the the, the, the we Texas get associated with oil and gas for for all the right and obvious reasons. But there's a lot of non fossil fuel activity, you know, even ironically happening in the Permian Basin. Uh, I saw a report last week that the the Permian Basin, you know, in West Texas area was the, some of the, the the largest kind of percentage of solar installations were going into the oil field to reduce you know the, the cost of kind of oil field equipment. So, so I think I mean can can you maybe talk how you know when we, we were looking forward I guess looking today at Texas and, and thinking out both near term and longer term um, you know how the energy transition may uh, you know allow the economy to evolve you know with it as opposed to you know while, while watching it evolve someplace else. Yeah yeah. 
Yeah, great question. Something that you know I've, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, um, over the last several years. Um, and and I think um, I guess just to give some quick context on kind of our overall overall kind of outlook for Texas in the near mm -hmm. term, we'll kind of get into some of these longer term energy transition dynamics. Um, but but I think you know, long story short, you know, as we kind of look out over kind of the next five years, um, you know, we're still very much bullish on the outlook for Texas. Uh, there's still a lot of room for growth in the major urban centers of, of Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, and, and in Houston. You know, Austin has been emerging as a premier destination for, for high tech in the U.S. Uh, San Antonio has enormous you know, financial operations and, and a military presence. Mm -hmm. Dallas has an enormous investment in corporate activity. And then, then Houston will benefit from uh, kind of the, as we kind of recover from this recent dip. Um, in, in, oil, in the oil markets and energy markets, um, you know, Houston's going to benefit as 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 um, oil production starts to firm again in Texas and downstream activity picks up. Um, so there's you know a lot of reasons to be uh, optimistic for Texas going forward, and there's still a lot of room for for growth. And, and I'd say that Texas is emerging uh, from the pandemic well positioned, and I think in part because of the struggles that you know, other states like California and New York had during the pandemic. So it was a case where, you know, despite that we had the severe correction in oil markets, uh, Texas still performed relatively well during the pandemic because its pandemic related losses weren't quite as bad as other states. And, and I think part of that was driven by the fact that it's a more rural state by nature and the mm -hmm. fact that it, it took kind of a less restrictive approach and, and did its best to foster as much economic activity as it could during this time. And there were major announcements during the pandemic that really set up Texas for, for a bright future. So Oracle is announced that it's moving its headquarters from California to Austin. Uh, Tesla is opening up its Gigafactory in Austin. And in Hewlett Packard Enterprises is moving yep. its headquarters from, from California to the Houston area. And, um, and that's great news for, for Houston. And I, I think it, it, it sends a signal that um, you know, Hewlett Packard Enterprise is probably going to be focusing its future investments in Houston, even though it's keeping its California operations. Um, it still is a, is a strong signal that it's very happy with how things are going in Houston. And one thing that it's mentioned as far as when it, when it moved to Houston is the fact that it's had you know great success uh, bringing in people uh, into the Houston area. And um, you know, it, it's a place where, and I think Texas broadly, this is such a big advantage for them is that they attract so many people a year, they already have a big population base. So employers are kind of able to find the, the skilled labor that they need, able to, to find or attract the labor that they need, and they have room to grow. And I think that's, and that combined with the lower business costs in Texas and kind of just the, you know, the pro-growth environment, there's a lot of good things going on in Texas right now and a lot of, and a lot of reasons to be um, bullish about the future in Texas. So, so we are, um, you know, forecasting Texas to remain among one of the fastest growing states in the U.S. So it's going to remain in the top five in terms of population, employment and GDP growth uh, like it has over the past couple of decades. I say the the raw rate of growth will decelerate, um, but we're also forecasting a broad deceleration uh, in U.S. growth and growth across you know most states just given that we are running into kind of some demographic limitations, you know, we're a mature economy. Right. It definitely puts kind of downward pressure on growth. So if you look at raw growth rates, they'll be lower, but relative growth, Texas is still, you know, one of the, the leaders as far as 
the fastest growing states and really a, a big driver for the U.S. overall, given the, the big size of Texas and the fact that it comprises such a big, a big share of the U.S. economy. Uh, now, and I think kind of that's the next five years. You know, as we kind of look further out and as we discussed earlier, just the fact that energy still remains such a big part of the Texas economy and the Houston economy, um, you know, there is some uncertainty as we kind of go you know, 20, 30, 40 years out into the outlook, because because we are on the precipice of, of, of moving towards kind of a, a lower carbon uh, energy environments. And there's been a major push, and, and rightfully so, to, to start limiting our reliance on kind of high carbon uh, energy sources. Right. So um, so then that becomes an interesting question. So, so what does that mean for Texas? Because I think theoretically, if it was a case where this completely transformed the energy industry and kind of, you know, Texas lost all of that market share. That would be an enormous shock. But I think that the idea, though, is that that's likely not going to happen. And and the reason being is that, um, you know, it's going to be a slower transition as mm-hmm. we kind of to this um, lower carbon energy economy. Um, so it's going to happen over time. And, um, you know, Texas and Houston overall hold really compelling competitive advantages in energy. So so I I think kind of just to kind of make some points to that. I think first and foremost, when we talk about Houston, you know, Houston knows energy. So the city has enormous operations uh, for ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, BP. You know, these are large multinational companies. Future future viability really depends on reducing its carbon footprint. Uh, Additionally, you know, leaders in Houston are well aware uh, of, you know, where we're moving from, from um, kind of an energy standpoint, and are taking steps to kind of kind of start that transition as well. Um, and really, there's no bigger concentration of energy expertise anywhere else in the U.S. than in Houston. Uh, so, you know, while the oil and gas history runs deep in Houston, it's also kind of a, a natural fit for the city to really take the reins in developing and implementing uh, new technologies for the future of energy. Um, and, you know, as I think, I mean, I'm thinking about kind of what other city is better suited to take the lead in the future of energy than Houston. And I really can't think of one. Um, so, you know, and, you know, I, and kind of kind of to think forward as far as kind of, you know, what technologies could potentially help move, you know, Houston forward in, in that realm. Um, you know, I'm not in kind of expert in the, in the kind of new technologies that, that are emerging. Um, and I don't know ultimately what technologies will win. And I'm not sure really anyone knows for sure. No, I don't think so. Um, but but I do but I do like to point to something that um, recently came out from from ExxonMobil, and they recently released a plan that that detailed um, a 100 billion dollar investment in carbon capture technology along the Gulf Coast. Um, now this you know was just announced. You know it was just conceptual. You know it's right. far from a done deal. Um, but, you know, and it would involve some pretty major public investment and a price on carbon to make it econo- economically viable. Um, but the announcement does highlight, you know, Houston's unique ability to be at the forefront of carbon uh, capture technology and at a scale that no other city in the U.S. would replicate. Uh, and the carbon capture infrastructure would be uh, built out, you know, to capture the CO2 emissions from Exxon's own operations, but also include power plants, refineries, chemical plants um, that are part of the broader Houston area. And then those emissions would then kind of be piped down into storage reserves in the Gulf of Mexico. So it's 
also a unique feature in Houston that it does have these reserves where they could, you know, safely store this, um, you know, these emissions. Um, and it could be a, a, a potential big one for Houston. So it would lead to this massive infrastructure investment in expansion, support jobs and construction and metal suppliers. And it could help preserve the existing infrastructure along the Gulf Coast um, and then making it viable kind of for, for many years to come, uh, even in a low carbon environment. So you know, that's kind of a technology that points to some optimism, optimism in Houston. On top of that, as you mentioned earlier, Hill, uh, you know, Texas and Houston they're making strides in, in um, kind of the, the renewable energy space as well. Uh, you know, Texas is the, the leading um, uh, producer of, of wind energy. Wind, um, right. Yeah, massive, massive wind operations in Texas. Uh, I think one in four jobs related to wind, wind energies is, is, is in Texas. And while Houston doesn't have like a lot of the wind farms itself, like in the Houston area, it mm -hmm. does have, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, activity as far as like managing the power um, from these wind farms is actually centered in Houston. So, so it's another reason to kind of be optimistic that Houston can kind of build out some of these renewable industries. You know, there have been some solar companies uh, moving in to Houston. Um, still small relative to, to oil, obviously, but but it, it's a growing share of, uh, you know, of jobs coming in. Um, and even say for like hydrogen uh, production and potential for hydrogen power in the future, um, you know, given Houston's infrastructure and energy expertise, you know, it could be a leader in that realm too, potentially. Yeah, I think that there's, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the Exxon uh, announcement, which, you know, I, I think that CCS, uh, carbon sequestration and hydrogen in particular have, have a lot, and we've talked about it on this podcast before in different episodes that have a lot of applicability to the legacy uh, energy flare. Um, and so there's a lot of enthusiasm around those. Hydrogen and, and carbon sequestration in particular seem to be earlier days. Um, you know, the, the Exxon, whether it's a plan or an idea, is I suppose open to interpretation, whatever it is, it's going to cost a lot of money. And, and I think, you know, I, I guess to kind of come full circle that, you know, you talk about wind and, and solar and all the advances that, that Texas as a larger economy have tied to that is also directly tied to your air conditioner point. Uh, or earlier in the call, that, that as long as it stays hot in Texas, we're, we're going to continue to need all sorts of uh, electric generation uh, to, to, to meet uh, the, the needs of all the residential home and, and office and whatever, you know, cool, cooling. So so all of this sounds uh, fairly encouraging uh, relative to, to some of the, you know, other, you know, economic transitions that, that we've talked about, you know, but both in this podcast and, and um, you and my kind of prior conversations. Um, so, so all in all, it sounds like you're you're a bit of a, a, a Texas bull. I'm, I'm sorry, that's a terrible pun, but uh, <laughs> but fairly encouraged you are for, for the economy. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think kind of um, like end on an optimistic note, especially if you're, if you're kind of rooting for Texas. Yeah, I am bullish uh, on the prospects for Texas and Houston. And, and honestly, I think a lot of things would have to go wrong um, for for kind of the growth story in, in Texas and Houston to kind of divert from, from where it has been. Um, just because, as I mentioned, the major competitive advantages that, that Texas holds, the concentration of industry, um, and just the potential for, for Texas to continue to be kind of one of the, the leaders um, in, in kind of this transition to kind of a new energy future. And there is historical precedent, like Texas has done this before. So um, again, th th there's reasons to be optimistic. But 
it's not certain either. I mean, things could go wrong. And um, if the transition to kind of a low carbon economy kind of happens quicker than what we're expecting and, you know, there's downside risks. But but I, I think um, I think the risks are more weighted towards towards, um, you know, Texas kind of kind of figuring out a way to kind of lead us into this this new energy economy. All right. Well, I think that's a, a perfect place to leave it. Well, one is optimistic and two, you, you've given us both, both uh, on the one hand and on the other hand, uh, cliche for, for every economist that, that has ever had a conversation with anyone uh, on this planet. So <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> well, thanks very much for, for the conversation. I, I really enjoyed it and I hope we can do this uh, again. I, I imagine that there's a lot of listeners uh, either in Texas or elsewhere who will enjoy listening to this as well. So, so thank you, Carl. Perfect. Yeah, thanks for having me, Hill. Really enjoyed it. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.